this is Auteur Detour, wherein three film lovers travel through the filmographies of cinema's most important directors in hopes of finding a greater understanding on the other side. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Auteur Detour. We're still going through the Coen Brothers movies, and we are up to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Accent on the Oh Brother. Oh, God. I knew we were going to go this already. <laughs> Before we started, I said to uh, Chris, I have a feeling me and Travis are going to get into it on this one. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but we'll see. The anticipation. Sparks will fly. Go ahead. So, shall I just get into the movie? Yeah. Let's do it. You seek great fortune. You three who are now in chains, you will find great fortune, but it will not be the fortune you seek. The Blind Oracle tells the leads, Everett, George Clooney, Pete, played by John Turturro, and Delmer, Tim Blake Nelson, at the beginning of their Homeric Odyssey. The prophecy comes true within the movie, but remarkably also comes true for the film itself, and for the same exact reason. Within the film... Travis, I see your face. (laughs) (laughs) The three jailbirds break from (laughs) break from the chain gang in 1937, rural Mississippi, to get to Everett's treasure before the town's dam is busted and his cabin swallowed by a lake. They make their way through the sepia-drenched Depression-era South, chased by. In typical Cohen fashion, the unstoppable evil force, this time embodied in a sheriff and his hellhound. Sorry. In order to make a quick 50 bucks, they record a song, Man of Constant Sorrow, accompanied by a hitchhiking blues man, Tommy Johnson, played by real-life musician Chris Thomas King. As they go through a series of Homeric trials and adventures, including a cycloptic John Goodman and some sirens that seduce them and turn, turn in Pete for a bounty, Their song grows in popularity across the state. The boys break Pete free again, and in a moment of conscience, Everett admits that there is no treasure, and what he was really racing for was to win back the heart of his wife before she marries a campaign manager for a racist candidate for governor. The same candidate heads the local Ku Klux Klan and attempts to lynch and hang Tommy Johnson. Our heroes save him, and then surprise everyone, including themselves, when they perform Man of Constant Stara, Sara to a starstruck crowd. Incumbent Governor Papio Daniel, the brilliant Charles Durning, pardons the now-famous band of criminals, and the racist candidate and his usurping campaign manager are run out of town on a rail. Even the devil's sheriff and his hellhound in a deus ex machina is washed away with the cabin and a thousand cans of hair cream to the bottom of the lake. But the real marvel is that off-screen, the same song that exploded in the movie somehow broke through and became a chart-topping, Grammy-winning powerhouse that inspired concert tours, a documentary, and a resurgence in folk music that inarguably changed pop music for the next 20 years and made the Coen brothers find fortune, though not where they were seeking it. Uh, what did you guys think about it? Oh, man. Sucked. <laughs> you want to go to first, Travis? Well, yeah, I'll just really quickly, you know, I feel like it was inevitable. The I feel like this movie was the Coen brothers basically back, like, up their own asses. Like, 
you know, exploring this kind of obsession about this language that doesn't exist anymore, these people in this time that doesn't exist anymore. It's photographed kind of like fetishistically. It's, you know, amazing characterization, amazing kind of like period details, like obsessive details and an incredible soundtrack that, yeah, like it is kind of a crazy phenomenon that this sort of thing popped up. But I mean, it's no different than like, you know, you know, Chant, the chant monks chanting getting popular in the 90s it's just like when weird stuff breaks through and everyone realizes oh yeah the stuff we're spoon fed on the radio sucks we should get you know this is interesting at least you know what i mean and it, it makes a weird kind of like anomalous I think it's kind of ripple in pop music than, but i think it's different than that because we'll, we'll get into that but i just want to say like to me this yeah. movie is just like you know, it's interesting and it's, they do a lot of really interesting things, but it feels so like just uninspired and just them. I don't know. I don't know. It's bad. We can get into it. But my main problem with this movie is the star George Clooney. Every other performance is basically pitch perfect for better or worse. George Clooney is complete, just a complete flop, dead weight, horrible to look at. Just honestly ruins the movie. My God. How dare you? You are so insane. I will tell you this right now. I knew you were going to say this because I wait. can read minds. Wait, 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 like, wait, wait. You knew I was going to say his performance was bad? Yes. Because but- anytime, like, through osmosis, like, this movie has come up or his name has come up in any other, like, circumstance, mm. I've seen you, like, hold back a little bit. I'm like, okay, Travis clearly doesn't <laughs> got like got something to say. <laughs> and, and, and so... I knew this was coming, and I was prepared to tell you, and I'm sorry, Chris, we'll get to your opinion. All good, please, have at it. Like, I'm ashamed of the fact that there's no women on this, like, podcast, so I will take the reins right now and tell you, like, he is a fucking smoke show. Saying he's like saying he's handsome does not mean he's a good actor. I mean, no, I, throughout this movie, I was like, actor. this is a movie that, like... Cary Grant would have played this role. <laughs> Clark Gable would have played this role, and they would have well, knocked Clark it out Gable of the park. Clark Gable did play this role. Yeah, and <laughs> it happened one Gable night. Was, okay, like yeah, so basically, yeah, that's what they're going for, and they picked somebody who can't do an accent, can't like those people were of their time, like of the '30s. Every other actor in this movie, like, can like believably portray somebody in that time period. George Clooney cannot. Every time he speaks, he can't do humor. He can't do physical humor. That's insane. He's so funny in this movie. He's like, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Or is there another yes. movie that we were supposed to watch that I missed? <laughs> yes, he's so funny. Why was this movie. movie not popular? It was. No, it was not. It was. And it was also, uh, listen, I'm not going to like automatically get into, you know, I like him in Up in the Air. It. I like him in uh, Ocean's Eleven. He's great playing like George Clooney. But he sucks, like, trying to do anything outside of his very, very narrow, like, movie star kind of, like... Well, that's why I brought up the handsome thing, was because, like, when he pops up on the screen in the, you know, opening shots of this movie, or, you know, opening scene, I'm like, you know, I've got this image of George Clooney in my head from the last 30 years of him being a movie star, or, you know, 25 years, and, like... Now when I picture him, he's an old man. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of like grizzled and got like that. But I hadn't seen like a 19 or 2000 era George Clooney movie in a long time. And I saw he popped up and I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I get it. He's 
like the sexiest movie star that's ever been alive. Like he's a, so good. No, B, Chris, please give us your opinion on this movie. Yeah, all right. Some thanks. kind of counter counterweight, <laughs> counterbalance. I'm not gonna touch on like who's who. Well, actually, the funny thing is, and you guys are gonna hate me for saying this because our he's our boy. Turturro is probably my least favorite uh, role of of his in a Coen Brothers movie. One, he's kind of smaller apart, but uh, you, you just no. you know. Okay, well, first of all, <laughs> let's well, let's just. Get, <laughs> All right, well, let me I give you my, my general that. overall. I really enjoy <laughs> this movie. Um, I really love the music. Amazing. Uh, there's yeah. certain things about it I really don't like, and part of it actually does involve the music, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, as a movie, there's, yeah, you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah. Uh, again, we'll talk about that later. In general, I love this movie. I think it's great. I love the way it looks. This was the first movie where I actually asked myself, who is Roger Deakins? Because I wanted to know like who set up the visual look of this film. And I know he doesn't have anything to do with like, the color grading or whatnot. No, but... he did. That was like his way of... He actually did do that. Oh, did he? Like, okay. He was the one who like well, great. formatted it and... I, I just yeah. think that, yeah, visually it looks great. I uh, I really enjoy uh, the, the I'm a huge literary nerd, of course, and I'm l- huge on mythology. So uh, I really like like being able to point out certain things. And even though, you know, stuff's different and a lot of these stories are just told uh, in different form, you know, you know, over the ages and whatnot. Uh, it's fun. It's different, though, than a lot of other Cohen movies. And there's certain problems ab- about the movie that uh, it's because they went a little bit outside of their normal uh, element. And I'll, I'll talk more about that later, I think. But in general, I really like this movie. I like the way it looks. And uh, let's move on from from my two cents because I want to hear you guys bitching <laughs> at each other. Well, because I do want to like, before you take it again, Travis, like, I want to step myself back by saying like, I feel like I'm going to get forced into defending this movie and not being able to say like the things that I don't like about it. Cause there is a lot I don't like about it also. So, uh, just before I get like sidetracked into just literally being like, this is the best Cartman Brothers movie ever made, which I by far don't believe, but like, I want, is- I, I, I want to let it be known that like, despite me coming for it so hard while I was watching it, I was kind of coming at it. Like I don't, uh, you know, there's a lot to not like in this movie, but there's a lot to love in this movie. Absolutely. Like, I don't think that, I don't know. I can't imagine you, Travis, like being a visual. Well, this know. is okay. Let me talk about the visuals in this movie for a second. Cause like, I do think, you know, obviously they went for like a really interesting kind of color palette. And part of me, like, it's like a very romantic, like really lush kind of looking movie. This like Southern Gothic kind of like, I mean, I love like, like, rich visuals that are just kind of, like, ornate and, like, Baroque, you know, and this movie does have a lot of that. I don't feel like the visuals are ever mined for their emotional power. Like, that, like, I don't think this movie has any emotional current in it at all. To me, it leaves me emotionally completely dead, and I think, like, that's how I felt about A Serious Man, too. I felt like, um, there's, like, there's, there's a lot of beautiful photography. The, um, the motion is, like, just not there. There are, like, if you watch any of these old movies, like, even, like, It Happened One Night, like, to me, like, a pretty, like, boilerplate kind of, like, um, romantic comedy on the road. Like, there's moments of, like, sweetness and stuff like that. They make kind of the most weak gestures towards that. And unfortunately, it's usually George Clooney at the helm when those moments are trying to be kind of I broached. Think, like... and, and they just fall so flat. I mean, his prayer to God... I'm like, I mean, I made a list of, I made a list of every time George Clooney tried to act and fell flat, I made a list of every time I laughed during the movie, which I, I was doing like, uh, 
you know, tally marks. And I never even did the five cross <laughs> oh, no. thing. I got to <laughs> three. Have. I got to three. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> it's not a funny movie. It's a very it's bad really movie. Funny. It's an unfunny movie. It's an unemotional movie. There's good okay, music, but the music so, isn't even done like to in a way that like arouses emotion or arouses like there's no like this you know it's meant for like nerds like you Chris I'm sorry to like like giggle to each other and chortle and show that they recognize the references to the Odyssey and it's like it's just it's very smart ass and it's not, not good. Here's what I think. Like I'm just gonna <laughs> worst movie. They're only bad movies so far in my opinion. It's too early for me to like fully say my thoughts on what you were talking about with the emotionality part of it, because I want to get into a sort of bigger issue later about, you know, how they're dealing with race in this movie, which is really like a conversation we have to have because it's the first movie that like has black people in it. And, you know, I think that like, if there's one big criticism that I've had of this movie, you know, for the last 10 years, which was probably the last time I watched it before this, uh, it is that, like, they don't, there's a, there's a problem the way that they're not taking, I don't know, maybe I, I should just put it this way, lynchings shouldn't be funny, like, it's not, that well, shouldn't be played for comedy. Well, that like, part wasn't, yeah, I don't think that part was actually intended to be uh, like I just mean humorous. they don't have the weight. They don't have well, the no, but they, they don't have the weight or like the depth, like skills to switch tone that quickly. Yes, they do. Think about how like menacing and like the grandeur and the menace of the like porn pool party in the Big Lebowski compared to like I, how the KKK meeting was like a, a Mickey Mouse Club meeting. They just, I don't think the that whole, there was anything menacing about that porn party either. I think The music and stuff like that. I mean, it was played like comically, but it's still you got the point of view of the character that it was like this like kind of scary. I don't know. There's no like this lynching. I'm not I'm saying it was. Well, I'm saying you could. It was like, oh, okay. They weren't going for menacing. Like they literally had a Wizard of Oz illusion in it. You know, right. But there's like, also no but there's also no like at least I'm saying the scene in Big Lebowski had like some power to it is what I'm trying to say. There was no power and you're saying they played it for comedy. It wasn't funny. It wasn't scary. It wasn't anything. That's, it's just the whole movie. And this is what my feeling about the whole movie. So we'll get into the race thing, but just like really quickly, and I want to get into this more as we sort of talk about it more, but like, I think that their argument and their, you know, this, this, uh, I mean, against that, because that was a thing that was levied against them a lot when this movie came out, was just like, the depression stuff is not held highly enough, like, in terms of how depressing it was for so many people, how, like, life-changing it was for America. You can't really just, like, you know, walk through that with, like, shits and giggles, and same thing with racism, obviously. But the, for me, like, if we're going to argue their argument, it's that they called it Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which Travis, as you've said on the podcast before, was the book within the film of Preston Sturgis's Sullivan's Travels. And the point of that movie is that, like, not everything has to be serious. Like, you can have fun. And in a lot of ways, I think that this movie was them using this picaresque, like, landscape, this American South landscape... And, like, using it for sight gags, which didn't work for you. And, you know, it does work for me. I think that there's a little bit of a, like, privilege there that they can just, like, 
walk through a lynching laughing, but like, I do think that like, you know, the scene, the montage scene, they always, they often have these sort of music videos in the middle of their movies. This is obviously musical, so it's got more than one, but the one where it's showing, you know, them getting famous and like traveling and they're like, you know, stealing a pie off the windowsill and like hopping on, you know, the back of trucks and like all this stuff. It's like, it's like he's stepping into a Dorothea Lange like f photograph, but like using it for sight gags, you know? Well, I think they're recreating real like, you know, kind of visual stuff that like exists kind of in the Americana ether. You know what I mean? And they're yeah. kind of putting it into like a, a film and it's it's really well, it's really well done, but it doesn't add up to a movie in my opinion, like well, it's I was just, just talking to my friend Julie about the toad when they think when Delmar thinks Pete gets turned into a toad and he's carrying him around and well, like one of my only like, laughs. <laughs> like that is like she's like, what is the you know significance of the toad? Or you know, we were talking about just things about this movie and, and I was like, because like we've got this image of like Fern's brother in Charlotte Web in Charlotte's Web or like Tom Sawyer or like just an American simple thing of like somebody in overalls carrying around a toad is like a thing that we have ingrained in our head you yeah. know and that's what no, like, i agree and picking up what you just said travis about it doesn't adding up to a whole movie and i think that's part of the problem with this movie for me it's different than the other ones usually there's all this different stuff that happens in a coen brothers film one thing leads to another which leads to another which leads to another like even in a movie like the big lebowski where those happenings aren't necessarily super consequential one thing leads to another right a guy pieces up pisses on the rug has to go get it get something back someone takes it back he gets thrown into this and that thing you know whatever whatever loses his car has to go find his car again there was a briefcase in the car all this stuff this one it's like a bunch of little like kind of stories in and of themselves that don't necessarily impact the thing that happens after it, which is what the Odyssey is, but that doesn't necessarily make for a great film as a whole, right? So you can take these individual like little short stories. It's almost like a trial run for Buster Scruggs or something almost, uh, if you think about it, you know, because it's not like this whole thing, like meeting, what's his name? Uh, the, um, the, the, the bank robber guy. He oh, really yeah. doesn't come Maybe into the movie ever again or any a number of these other things. I mean, yeah, you see him at the end because like everyone has to come back together. It's like a fable in that sense, right? But uh, that's the issue I had with the movie was that it's a great number of short stories. But they do have, like, it's a homecoming. It's like the classic Homer homecoming. No, like I said, he, they like, did it deliberately and that's like, I understand like what it is, you know, because the Odyssey is the same way, like, you know, the Lotus Eaters. None, none of it works. I was thinking of Buster Scruggs too. I thought this, and I was thinking like how much better Buster Scruggs was than this movie. And I was like, that movie works so well and this one works just so poorly. But I, what I was thinking about, like you're saying, Chris, um, the different way, the way that they, I was, I came to a new kind of understanding or appreciation about how they come up with their movies, their scripts and stuff like that. And, you know, what are they really great at? I mean, characterization, um, like, you know, incredible visuals, characterization. They're not really amazing storytellers. Like every story is not like, um, oh, we have this plot point. We have this plot point. It's really just, you know, you have a movie like Barton Fink or Miller's Crossing, where there's almost no story at all. It's just all in the in the mood. Yeah. Hudsucker mm -hmm. Proxy, Hudsucker uh, Proxy, it's like barely a story. Their best stories are you're you're right. They like they just turn a cr a simple crank and then they just let it play out, like Fargo, like yep. um like Blood Simple, like Raising Arizona. Yep. Um, and then this movie, it's like, uh, what do we do for a story? Uh, let's do the Odyssey, and it's like. Um, and, and they do it, like they make it work, like they find, they make all the pieces fit, but there's literally no moment where you're like, oh my God, that's inspired. Like, you know, of course that's how that parallels. There's no, and, and like, there's, I mean, that's my main problem with the movie. Like 
it's just arbitrary. It's just kind of smart ass. It's like, okay, fine. What do you got? Where's the, like, do your musical comedy, do it right now. And it's like, well, we got nothing. We got some good songs. You know, we have these visuals. Uh, there's not a funny joke in the movie. And it, aside from the incredible performances by a few of the actors, especially Charles Durning, especially, uh, I think Tim Blake Nelson does a really great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those two are the MVPs to me too, um, for sure. I think like, Going back a little bit to what you were saying about them going back up their own ass, I also had that feeling with this movie is like the same feeling as Headsucker Proxy where I was just like, oh, they're getting swallowed again. Like they're getting too like caught in what it means to be in a Coen Brothers movie. And it like manifests itself in ways of like, my I've quoted it to you guys before, but like my least favorite line is something that I actually laughed at in the theater, I remember, because I... I don't know, but uh, was when he throws him out and he says, and stay out of the Woolworths. You know, it's just like this big fat-faced guy that's like, you know, just an ultimate Coen Brothers face saying a dumb Coen Brothers line. And it's like, I don't know, it just feels like you're like, oh, you guys are making a Coen Brothers movie. You're not like trying something. You know, you know I think I mean? there was a rep, like a, I think Holly Hunter having like 10 kids was also a reference to Raising Arizona, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> well, remember the way that uh, Big Dan picks up, uh, I think he like throws him over his shoulder or something. I think he did the yeah, same yeah, exact yeah. move in Raising Arizona, if I recall. But anyway, yeah. The way he threw that frog kind of reminded me of the Babe Ruth movie Ooh. he's in too. <laughs> There's something very iconic about the way he smashes the frog and just tosses it like kind of like weakly. The, the, at the camera's tree. so close; it's just right in his fist, and then it's just this effete sort of like you know deflated yeah. toss. Yeah, I mean, you can tell what they're into in this movie. It's not the characters. It's not the you know. I mean, like they're incredible at creating like specific characters, but it's not like in any way that like there's no chemistry between the th- three main characters. But the texture of like. I mean, the things that I remember are, yeah, the pie on the windowsill, the record grooves being scratched into the record, the grabby thing, getting the Dapper Dan off the shelf uh, in, like, the corner store. Like, that is where their heart is and stuff like that. When you say they're too into the Coen Brothers thing, I mean, I think they enjoyed themselves. I think they, you know what I mean? But, like, I just don't, I don't think it, it just did not make an impact on me. It was the it's the first think, movie they've done that just, like, left me totally think- cold. If you would have liked George Clooney, maybe it wouldn't be like that because that sounds like... I think maybe, and I have some casting, I have some casting, uh, you know, It's going to be hard because I thought... (laughs) I'm going to blow your mind, Ian. Not only did he, like... (laughs) He can't sing. He looked so fake when he sang. I know. You can't buy him singing. His worst. That's the centerpiece of the film. (laughs) Right. That that was one of my. That's what I meant when I said uh, the issue of the music. The music itself is great, but the execution of it is uh, like when he's in the box or when John Turturro does the yodel. Like, good, give me a break. And if you look at the guitar player, it's not in sync. He's a guitar player. This guy like is a legit guitar player, but he's not playing with the the beat. You know, like they're not really. uh, I think maybe they learned their lesson or something with inside Lewin Davis. Obviously, they actually got people to perform it the songs that they were singing. But they worked with T-Bone before the movie was written, you know, like they, they worked like the, the soundtrack of this movie out, like as they're writing it, you know, it was always going to be the centerpiece of the movie. It was like not, um, the performances necessarily as much as like the, you know, using the music and the choices of the song specifically as like the landscape of the movie. And I do want to say about the choices of the songs, Travis, you saying like things don't come back, but like, I didn't say that. I think I said I that. 
Oh, sorry. Chris certain said. characters like how, yeah, um, don't come back around necessarily. Certain characters. Oh, no. But Travis was saying something about how, like, uh, in most of their movies, they it, there's, like, some thread that goes through. And in this, it's, like, you know, not carrying through with that Coen Brothers tradition. It's just, like, scene to scene. I don't Chris, think I said, said that. Something similar yeah, I think Chris too. said that. Well, Travis, you said it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so, basically, what I was going to say is that, like, I was thinking about the circle theme that's always present in their movies and how it's kind of, you know, absent in this movie, mm-hmm. except for the tire thinking, in the flood. Yeah. But I was thinking about like, in terms of cyclical, like that part of it. Decker uh, Dan canisters. They do. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. There's a lot of, rock. <laughs> but you know, those things are around. <laughs> like, <you can't> just, <laughs> um, the earth where the movie takes place. <laughs> but I was thinking about how like, in the movie, the songs that they are singing, you know, and it's all diegetic music except for the first opening, which is Big Rock Candy Mountain. And, like, the songs that they're singing are old-timey songs as they're, like, in, within the frame of the movie, too, you know? It's like, Man of Constant Sorrow is an old-timey hit in 1937. And, like, they're already playing, like, old-timey music. And I think that there is something that they're trying to say about how, like, everything new everything old is new again, you know? And that's like the cyclical thing that they're exploring in this movie. And that completely like played out in real life. The fact that... Right, right. And that is interesting. Yeah, for sure. It blew up. (laughs) Like, it's crazy how... It beat Stankonia for the Grammy, which (laughs) I still uh, resent, so... (laughs) I know. And like, not just that, but like you... You know, I don't necessarily like any... I do love, like, a lot of old-timey folk music, you know? And it's, you know, folk music's always been a part of me, more of the, like, 60s, like, Dylan era folk music, but um, that they go into with Inside Lewin Davis. But uh, the um, bands that came out of, like, specifically this movie that, like, took over, like, you know, I'm thinking of all the, like, Mumford and Sons and all that stuff that came, like, out of this that really did dominate like the next 10 to 20 years of music in a lot of ways. I know like, you know, I shouldn't say dominate, but that's what I was going to say when like throat singing was a thing that like people our age were like suddenly into throat singing in like, you know, 2002 or whatever it is. But that was like a isolated moment with like a, you know, niche thing. No, I'm talking about the, 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 the nineties phenomenon of, of the monks, chanting they're like remember like the pure moods era like yeah yeah sure that too that was but even that that's not like winning that's not topping the billboard chart literally 13 months it didn't have as big a an impact you know like (laughs) this movie came out in october of 2000 and in like you know november of 2001 something else happened around then i don't remember what but november of 2001 uh there was a like it was still at the top of the charts like it's crazy how big of an impact this album had i knew it would it wasn't that crazy to me i was reading the odyssey and i was like you know this is probably going to be a really popular sound <laughs> um just they kidding. say that they have never read the odyssey did you guys see that that makes sense yeah. that's, wait wait, wait. there's like a lar- there's like a long most people have it though t- 
there's a long history of directors saying I've never read the book that this movie's based on right. as like a brag, like from like Orson Welles, not reading Touch of Evil. Yeah. It's like, uh, <laughs> so that's like, that's just a classic thing. But I think the Odyssey is one of those books that you don't actually have to read to know the story really well because it is taught in school and everything like that. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Well, that and the fact that, I mean, a lot of the stories told in the Odyssey weren't invented in the Odyssey necessarily anyway to that degree. I mean, it's, it's basically a culmination of a lot of different like stories in some form or another that are handed down. Like that's just the way we, we you know, carry on as human beings right so i mean it doesn't surprise me and the fact that the book is just goddamn who knows how long you know and it's a poem and like most people probably frankly haven't read it and we've all just absorbed it by cultural osmosis anyway absolutely you know so I you don't really like have to it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise Odyssey me from like tiny tune adventures than i have from anything do you think else, the you know? <laughs> colors not being realistic was a reference to the wine dark sea of the odyssey uh, I was thinking that? of I, did, I was thinking I of the battle between Scylla and Charybdis, actually, uh, really, and the island of the what Lotus Eaters. What did you guys eaters? think of the story following the Odyssey? Did you care? Did you like? Did it amuse you? Did you like? What did you like about this movie? Please tell well, okay, me. Okay, let's talk first because let's go back in time um, to uh, 2000 when you saw it. If you saw it in 2000, I saw it in theaters in 2000. Yeah, when it came out, and yeah, yeah, I was so just. So, what like, did you think of it then? boring uh i liked the music a lot i mean it was like on the big screen it was like you know interesting enough that it kept me going through the length of the movie and then by when it ended i was just kind of like huh and then i you know i never revisited it my parents bought the soundtrack and i listened to that like a hundred times um i mean i love old old music like that i actually have an album Around the same time, NPR started sending out, like, yodeling CDs when you gave, like, mm-hmm. donations. So my parents would have all this other random folk stuff, and I would I got, like, really into that stuff. Um, I mean, like, old country western music and stuff like that is rad. So um, there's a lot about the movie. I, I mean, a few moments. It's done. There's, like, a lyrical quality to the movie where it sticks in your head more than, like, some other crappy movies. You know what I mean? But I, like, I just... All the jokes just left me, like, shaking my head, rolling my eyes. Every time George Clooney was like mugging to the camera, I was just like, I can't believe they the Coens <laughs> let this happen. Um, they didn't just let it happen. They love him and he loves them. Like he reframed his entire career around them. Ripping them off. Yeah. And like they, <laughs> yeah. they birthed a whole genre of ripoffs of themselves yeah. based on them uh, like humoring this guy. <laughs> this like rich guy they just want to be friends with. I would say like, good for them. The like I, I really feel like it's like a, a Ripley kind of thing. They're like obsessed <laughs> with this like beautiful man, and they like it's gross. It's weird. Well, I'm just oh, I'm would, I'm exaggerating, but I'm I'm just saying it's I'll, like nothing good. I will no, nothing be high five you when we get to hail Caesar, which I think that he's the worst part. Uh, of that well, movie. yeah, we've already oh, established I think he's that. Fine in that. I have no problem. No, with that. no, you're I mean, wrong. Wrong, he's bad. Guys. He's just not as bad. He is that bad. He's the worst in that movie. <laughs> what? How is he? Oh, we'll get what, into that one. We have a couple that weeks made for you that. Laugh in this when he's like, it's "We're in a very tight spot. being his." We're oh, in, a tight in that spot. movie. Oh, in this movie. Yeah. Well, I didn't. Well, for me, just to answer your question about what we did like about it yeah. when it came yes. out. And I'll have to admit, I was in a very different like place as far as film viewing and like actually breaking down what's happening that I'm watching and what am I responding to? I liked short stories. I liked stuff that was like, bam, bam, bam. Uh, I love this idea of like the myth and whatnot and uh, this things like the Odyssey. So I think that alone was what spoke to me is that, bam, here's a little adventure. That's over. Oh, there's another little adventure. That was fun. Let's go on to the next little adventure. And for some reason, like The Hobbit and stuff like 
like that. Those were the kind of stuff that like I really, really dug, especially at that time. So this movie was like, yeah, this is all those things. I don't have to think about anything really anymore. You know what I mean? Whereas films like The Big Lebowski is like, wait, what happened to where, wait, why, they stole the rug, but it didn't belong to like the guy. So You know what I mean? There's all these little things yeah. that you needed yeah. to really keep in mind. This one was like, turn brain off, watch pretty movie. Awesome. It was I think I that's the why Cohen's I enjoyed Hobbit it. now. The what? It's also the first. I want to see the Coens brothers do The Hobbit now. That would have been a better movie. I think. <laughs> oh, anyone anyway. would have made a better movie. Anyway, but yeah. Um, the, uh, they kind of break, broke form earlier in their career, but I was thinking about how like they went, they usually go dark movie, light movie, dark movie, light movie, and so on, you know? The only time it gets like muddy before this is like that Barton Fink is between uh, Miller's Crossing and Hudsucker Proxy, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like an anomaly. But, but they also that, did, they also did they they almost did Hudsucker Proxy and then Big Lebowski though so I don't know that it is so you know well alternate. I mean the way that it actually plays out like if you watch yeah. their movies like you know they go in that order where it's I mean Blood Simple's dark no, I understand yeah, yeah. Like, you know I understand do me. I should I? <laughs> I'm just kidding and then this is the first one that's two comedies in a row like that they've done you know because they've been uh, and I think that like. Watching them this close together, it does feel that was part of it for me that I wasn't vibing with. Where, and maybe that's why I felt like they were getting up their own ass a little bit, like you were saying. Like, I don't believe that I'm judging it based on the order that it came out in. No, I think it's I'm judging it purely on its merits. Well, I I just mean where they're at, like because they do have this tendency to reel back when they've gone too far, you know, like they. yeah, I mean, to some degree, but I kind of think they just kind of do their own thing. And I don't think they really, I don't know how much they care about what, what critics say. You know what I mean? Like, I, I remember reading a quote of theirs where they, you know, they had won, like, they had like bowled over Can when they went there the first time or like when they went there with like Barton Fink, right? And they won like every award. And then I remember that reading, they like showed this one at Can. And at that time, they had, you know, been at like the top and the bottom of like critical consensus and stuff like that. And they showed this movie and it was like, there was no reaction. Uh, from the audience. They could just tell that no one was into the audience. Uh, I mean, into the movie. Um, and they were just like, okay, I guess this is one of those ones that's just not going to hit. You know what I mean? And they didn't think, like, we've gone too far. We need to, like, restructure. It's like, they follow their muse. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, I mean, that's how I kind of read it. And and like I said, I don't think this movie is, like, as, like, a showcase for the music. I think you could argue that it's, it's successful. Um... Some of those like visuals, like we were saying, are really cool. Although I think you know they got into their like over computerization a little bit in this movie that I think takes them down a bad road. I mean, I haven't seen, I still haven't seen Lew- Inside Lewin Davis, but like I, the clips I've seen of that have this kind of murky like CG feel to them that I I must say I do not like. And uh, but I'll I'll just say like um, yeah, I think uh, I think they're gonna go way. <laughs> I think they cross the line again and again, like bad taste, good taste. I don't, I don't know that they really care how people take it completely. I don't know. It's hard to say. Maybe they. I, I'm, just I'm not going to try to get inside their head, though. Like that's not my. I don't. I'm not interested in that. I do think this movie revealed really clearly some of their, you know, some of their interests and some of their themes in a way that some of their better movies don't. Where I'm like, I kind of don't notice them because they're not as clunky feeling to me. Like so I, I do want to talk about kind of what I got out of this movie. Should I do it right now? Sure. Well, before you do really quick, yeah. I'll just say that I saw it also when it came out in 2000. And I 
Absolutely loved it. I thought it was hilarious. I fully laughed. You asked me what funny thing he says. Like, all of his hair gags, all of his... I, I was a big It Happened One Night fan, like, from birth. You know, it was like a movie that was in constant rotation in my house. And, like, I recognized it immediately at 18 in the same way that, like, you know, Chris is noticing The Odyssey. I'm watching it as, like... A 1930s film lover, but there's you know, no romantic, like, there's no romantic drive, and there's no chemistry between the three main characters. Like the romantic kind of I, plot they bring into it at the I, end is like just sort of like tacked on. And well, Holly Hunter's done dirty in this movie. Like she has no part. That's one thing I think that even though that's true, she's incredible because she's Holly Hunter. Sure, and like she does so. I mean, they, she doesn't. They could have just so had one line her. that George Clooney said where he talks about like. I'm going to get back to my wife, like, because of something, like, you know what I mean? Like, just t give me that thing that I can, like, connect but with I later. With but you, that, like, I fully, like, you know, Tim Blake Nelson's new when this movie comes out. I mean, he's not. He's been a character actor forever. But, like, this is really a breakout for him. And uh, he's got, like, a, a, a Laurel, a Stan Laurel thing going on. That I yeah, really, I mean, <laughs> he really fits in with like yeah. Nice, when he know, does a dumb face, I buy it. You know, yeah, like yeah, when George yeah. Clooney does, I do not buy it. <laughs> I just thought it was like you know he's he's doing you know Clark Gable's doing Bugs Bunny or Bugs Bunny's doing Clark Gable I guess and George Clooney's also doing uh, Bugs Bunny like it's that he's doing fast what thing. other movie does he do Bugs Bunny in successfully because I I don't buy it a and then b I think you're I don't know I what am I I don't know I have the I same feeling him. though about Nick Cage in Raising Arizona the first time I saw him like what is this guy he's like a human cartoon kind of deal and the same thing oh, sort it. of the same thing when you pop up the first time you see George Clooney he looks the same way because like er? and he has his hair kind of like big sort of like a right. uh, like like a uh, Nicholas Cage's character I'm like okay mm -hmm. and then of course he speaks in this wet manner that like no one else would talk. are any of you gentlemen uh, versed in the metallurgic arts like can you just saying? say does anyone I have the way saying? to clip off my chains you know I see like, what you're saying but Nick Cage has conviction George Clooney has smugness there are they are not the same and I can I should, do, should I do my dream casting right now all right <laughs> yeah, watching the movie I had a couple thoughts I was like I was thinking of like who could play this kind of southern doofus but have like charm and stuff like that and I was thinking like Brad Pitt maybe could play like some version of that like an like he overestimates like his own intelligence and I was like well he wasn't really doing roles like that at the time Owen Wilson had just kind of broken onto the scene like maybe yeah. he could have done it okay this is the this is the good casting though and actually I have to give credit uh, Jenny Continue. actually came up with this Johnny Depp in kind of like Ed Wood mode could have given a thousand times of a better performance the musical stuff would have been more believable he's funny unlike George Clooney <laughs> oh, he has like he has like he carries pathos with him like he he's a good actor George Clooney is not a good actor and that is the difference that would have made this movie at least I could have accepted the movie on its own terms but with George Clooney in there I kind of just like disengage when has Johnny Depp done a southern accent Johnny Depp can do any accent I have I don't need to I don't need to cite <laughs> it he's, I, he's show me where he's missed on an accent and I'll uh yeah <laughs> okay well fine I Pure fire. Know. You said <laughs> from hell wasn't very good, but he still did a British accent. <laughs> not every movie he's is a winner, but he's a good actor. I've not right. seen the crimes of Grindelwald or whatever, but fair enough. I'm sure he's great in it. <laughs> Mordecai. Well, Mordecai. Yeah, haven't, Travis. Haven't I do want to say thank you for not saying Matthew McConaughey though, because uh, I appreciate that. Why? I think he would have. That's actually a good suggestion. Yeah, What's wrong actually, with Matthew? McConaughey? He's got the accent. <laughs> he's definitely got the he's accent. Up, he's right there. He's number two, maybe. I love McConaughey, but no, I think Johnny Depp would have been 
perfect. He's got that, he can do that old time smarm. He can switch from like being charming to being like a total buffoon. I, I you know, I don't know. No, that's, the that's only interesting. Thing, I mean, can't do here's what I'm seeing though, is like what Clooney is bringing to it is like oh, please full on Clark Gable movie star thing. And like to what end I mean, though? To what end? It doesn't work. He hasn't. He doesn't have. It any... works for fitting you into this. Like, it's also a road no. movie, right? It's also a road movie. Like, it, despite it being like a pastiche of Americanas, like, and like a visual Dorothea Lange, you know, whatever tribute. But like, it's also just like a 1930s road movie, which is like a very you know, it's playing out like that. And he brings that to it. Like he's what does he bring? Plays. I do Besides think like George Clooney has a more old timey face than like a jo- Johnny Depp looks like a like a new age like hip kind of yeah, guy. And I think George friend. Clooney looks so. a little more classically old school kind of like handsomeness to him. So maybe that was part of it. I think Johnny Depp the association with the viewership is usually like bam, this is Johnny. He's the guy, you know. And uh, George Clooney wasn't exactly like crushing hits. Yeah, George Johnny Depp is a better movie star than than George Clooney. I agree. <laughs> I mean, he's coming off of... Okay, well, who else we got? You said, Chris, that you weren't crazy about John Turturro in this. Yeah, I mean, I do that. love the part where uh, he finds out that Everett stole his cousin's watch and he has this look right. where his one eye kind of shuts and he's getting really mad. I really love that. But I... I think Americans ha- tend to have a real like lo- they love to over ham up Southern accents because it's the easiest accent as an actor to put on, probably, especially a really thick one. Yeah, well, clearly. Yes. <laughs> and this one, it's like you're just it's just so over the. I don't hate him. Don't get me wrong. But he's so good and so effortless at almost every other role that this was one where it just kind of stood out to me that I didn't. Yeah, care this for. Th- you know, I kind of agree that was it was underwhelming the first time I saw it. I appreciated him more on the rewatch. It was really more just like George Clooney was the one who was just like, <laughs> but like uh, I see what you're saying about John Tur- and I, I, I even see what you're saying about him being a smaller role. Like he's he's burying himself in the role. He's not like he's not like throwing himself out there like he did as like Jesus. You know what I mean? Like totally. I, I get right. what you mean. Yeah. But I personally was like, you know. Seeing him again, I say this every week, I feel like, but like seeing him and John Goodman and Holly Hunter and like any time one of their guys, fucking Charles Durning, I would love to spend the rest of this podcast talking about Charles Durning. But like when he pops back up, it's like, I fucking love that they just use these guys and they know how to use them. Durning and Curve, like, that could be the name of the podcast. The Durning Curve. <laughs> yeah, the Durning Curve. I'll come up know. with something better. I'll keep working on it. He does this... um thing in both Hudsucker Proxy and this one where he's a grumbly asshole for the, you know, in Hudsucker Proxy, it's obviously a shorter time that you know him. But then when he comes out as like a beacon of sort of energy and like he's in this one, it's when he skips out onto the stage and he's like in full blown, like uh, energetic sort of happiness mode. And he does it as the angel in, that's like a proxy where he's just like beaming light and he's got this way about him where you're like, Oh, that's my fucking asshole grandpa. That's an asshole, but like can like bestow the cookie of light upon you. You know, it's like, I don't know. I just love him so much. Kind of, can I reply to that, but kind of switch gears a little bit from where we're we're talking about. I just want to like his role in both those movies actually kind of like brings into relief um, kind of a theme we've been talking about. And Ian, you brought up a lot, which is like, why well it's something i've talked about and you've talked about in different ways 
Um, there's a line where they're talking about like how the law is a human institution, you know, mm. and it was like, mm-hmm. I feel like they talked about a lot, like all their themes were right on the surface. Like the characters yeah, are just yeah. talking about their themes and stuff like that. And that, you know, kind of distinction or the overlay of like human law and like cosmic good and evil being totally different. And in this one, it's like literally the criminals are like the kind of like saintly kind of trio. And then the got cop who's after them is like the embodiment of Satan. And right. uh, and then the governor, of course, is like or the, you know, the campaigning governor is uh, like a Ku Klux Klan dragon or whatever. Right. Um, so that's like a, a really obvious version of that. But um, I was thinking about why they, you know, why they make crime movies and why they focus on the common man or the little man, as he's referred to in, a, in this movie um, <laughs> in a pretty good visual gag. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, in the movie, the criminal guys, you know, Clooney and the gang are affected by economic and political forces, right, that they don't really, they don't, they have no control over them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're not even fully cognizant of them. And this is a theme in all their movies, right, where people are like, uh, they don't understand the politics behind things, you know, like, the you know, uh, the dude is kind of like kicked from like rich person to rich person, right. just manipulating him. Um, these, so, but the Coen brothers also go out of their way to show that like even the people like at the top of the food chain are also subject to these cosmic forces and these whims of kind of fate uh, that they have no control over and even their own subconscious desires and impulses that they also don't understand and no one understands. So by focusing on the common man, they can show how like he's kicked around by like earthly forces and kind of human um, systems and then also uh, show how people... um, are also in the thrall of like, you know, the hand of God, basically. And I think, yeah. and so that's my thought on that. I think you nailed that. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't add anything to it. I think that's right. Like they do work in that realm a lot in mo- basically all of their movies. And you're right. In this one, it's right there on the surface. Like they literally don't hide the fact that the unbearable or the unstoppable evil is the devil. Like they, they call him that he's got flames in his eyes at all times. Like it's, it's very baseline, like not subtle, I guess is the word I'm looking for. And I don't know, that doesn't bother me. I no, no, it's, I mean, okay. it's, it's, I liked, again, I like that it kind of like shed some light uh, on, again, their kind of themes in a way that like allowed me to, it was almost like a little skeleton key for some of their other movies. In fact, there's something that I've noticed on the rewatch of all these movies that has been st- sticking out to me. And I wanted, I thought I was going to talk about it in the next episode when we talked about the man who wasn't there because I think that's where they kind of get into it the most like where it's the biggest theme but there's a part of this movie about 28 minutes in Tommy is playing the guitar around the campfire and all the guys are sitting around the campfire Mm -hmm. and he's singing a song it's a really beautiful song and even though they're all lit by the fire so they almost be within inches of each other every guy is shown in an individual shot and they're never shown in the same shot and it's a perfect like visual like that's this is a perfect example of the Coen brothers like you know making and emphasizing the fact of the distance between people you know each guy is like looking up into the stars and you realize they all have their own place that they're going to their own dreams right and that's when they start talking about what are you going to do with this money and it you realize they're all kind of in their they're not together around the campfire they're in their own worlds in their heads and um and that's just something that's been like really clear to me like 
the way that like language kind of traps mm-hmm. you in like you can't communicate with other people like has been a theme since like blood simple the yeah. way that like you know your dreams and your desires kind of like separate you from other people like wanting more than other people separates you capitalism separates you or alienates you i guess in marxist terms um i think that's like a, a major theme and i think that was kind of a Again, just a not the most beautiful thing that they've done, but but a very um, clear example right. of, of that theme. And I, I do want to talk about that more in the next movie. Well, and it's also important. I'm sorry, Chris. I keep like cutting you off. Let Chris talk. Yeah. No, just real quick. And it's a really great point you brought up, Travis. I haven't mentioned this before. And this is a really subtle thing, but it's in every single one of their films. And it's prominent. But you would never notice it unless you're really watching for it. When two people are speaking in a Coen Brothers movie, the way you typically shoot it is two people in the same frame, right? Usually one over one shoulder from distance. It's almost always... Uh, directly facing the only person in the in the camera is the person who's speaking or listening, right? It's not too often that you have both people in the frame. That really emphasizes the reaction of the person who's uh, who's in the frame, right? And that's the same thing. They tend to shoot individuals more than they do duos yeah, or trios. Absolutely. Almost every if you really like again rewatching these films, uh, you really make it. They are one of the only people that do that. Paul Thomas Anderson does it a little bit too, but uh, usually most directors shoot in a certain way. And there is such that it truly emphasizes the one person, you know, uh, even if it's just two people in a conversation, they do it all the time. So that's a really great There's, point you brought up, you know, how they, yeah. they, they do that in that. that uh, I knew Chris was going to compliment me. That's why I wanted him to talk. So you go <laughs> I'm going to lose what I was just going to say, because I want to move on to uh, no. you bringing up Paul Thomas Anderson, because I do think that, like, it's worth mentioning that at this point, we're firmly in like a new uh, era of independent filmmakers like they are you know it's 2000 and like Paul Thomas Anderson is huge Wes Anderson's huge you know the guys like them like Lynch is c- having a comeback with same year with uh, Mulholland Drive they're having like a you know peak of their career in a lot of ways although not necessarily uh, in their mind you know they're just sort of keep going and changing the whole time but and like you know, Burton's making fucking Planet of the Apes. Like, everybody's sort of, like... The 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 shift is happening between the old guard and the new guard, I feel like. Yeah. And, like, that's an interesting thing for this movie to me. I just wanted to sort of, like, frame it in the culture for where they were at because I do think that, like, even Tarantino, who's a lot newer than them, at this point is, like, you know he's almost old guard too. Like he was like getting ready to make kill bill. I feel like I don't even know, but it's, uh, it's in that, um, era where like what we think of as independent cinema, like they're almost not it anymore. They're basically like studio, like indie guys. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, going back to you talking about your theme, I will touch back on it is that I do think that like, one thing that this movie reminded me of raising Arizona about and really all of their movies is that like they love to show like these criminals as completely innocent, not innocent of their crimes, but just completely dog-eyed innocent like souls. People. You yeah. know, where like you feel like none of the three of them could hurt a fly, you know? <laughs> They're like they really are like and then they've got this, I don't think that the, I don't remember the actor's name, so I didn't look it up, but the guy who played the uh, hell 
you know, the Satan guy. That's the, the that's George's boss from Seinfeld. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to okay. call him Mr. Pitt or whatever. Not Mr. Pitt. One of the other ones. But um, he uh, was... His his scenes in a way don't work for me like as a way to like drag the movie. I guess what I was gonna say is like in the same way that when I think about raising Arizona, you know, you plotted raising Arizona as like this force of evil versus this innocent good. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like that's what this movie is too. In both movies, as opposed to some of their other movies, I don't really think of that as like what's driving the plot along at all. Like every time he pops back up on screen in either movie, whether it's Tex Cobb or George's boss, <laughs> like I'm just like, oh yeah, and they're getting this thing is going on. Like you well, know, because like not... in because in in Raising Arizona, it's like you have their earthly problems, which are like being chased by the cops, right. being chased by the uh, criminals that are that broke out of jail. But then you also have this kind of cosmic right. force on top of that. In this movie, there's no like when they escape, it's not like oh my god, there's somebody on their tail, and it's also not like he's going for some kind of romance. There's literally just like. Like we're on the run, like, and there's no force pushing the plot whatsoever. They just kind of bumble between like different episodes. If they make, if any good joke happens, like, you know, that's wonderful. But I don't think the Coen Brothers are even interested in that. They're just like, what's the next song? What's the next like period detail we can like lovingly light? You know, let Roger Deakins beautifully photograph, and that's like that is their primary concern. It's successful, and it's not a good movie. Right. I I didn't really because of George Clooney, like the fact that. You know, after he admits, George Clooney's character admits, like, yeah, there's no treasure. I kind of just needed you guys to come with me. I would have been like, peace. I'm out. I'm going to beat your ass. I'm going to leave you on the road. And I'm not dealing with you ever again. Like, there's no reason for me to associate with you because you are not to be trusted. You know what I mean? So, okay, that's fine. We'll we'll be buddies again. Will you be my friend? Sure. Let's go on to the next adventure. It's like, what? It wasn't believable. And it wasn't like, but it's, again, it doesn't have to be believable in any kind of like, Ian, you just, you posted this hilarious thing. And Chris, you you had a great take on it too. Like the Disney, the the Beauty and the Beast, like uh, paradox or whatever. (laughs) Just how, how many huge plot holes. But that movie works. You know, of course, in spite of all that stuff, like, and it's right. only if you think about it that you're like, wait a minute, like this movie, you could think about it and it might all kind of work out perfectly if you mapped it out, but it doesn't have that emotional thrust or like narrative thrust that like makes you care about the story for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Like literally it's just like, this is a cool song. You know, it was funny uh, watching the, um, the sirens singing their laundry song. Yeah. <laughs> I was like for like 10 minutes or however long that lasted. I was like. This is like an. I turned to Jenny and I was like, "This is like a 1930s uh, like beer commercial that they're directing." And then they started trying to force the uh, their uh, bootlegged whiskey yeah, onto yeah. them or whatever. And I was like, "Oh, it is like a beer commercial." It really is. Yeah. It's literally I that. Think, That's um, what they're doing. That Go is to one sleep. Of the things, and you know, drink this beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Moonshine. One of the things the that like I'm finding about all of their movies, and you know, that goes back to the Preston Sturges thing, which like. Which is that I've never, even with my favorite of their movies, which as of now, Fargo is still at the top of the list. Like, I'm not moved, like, emotionally. It's more just, like, moved artistically, you know? Like, I don't find any, like, even at their best, I don't feel like that's their their strength, you know what I mean? Sure. I I just mean, like, an emotion enough to, like, be invested in like human characters and it, and that line may be different for everybody i mean there are people i think who watch big lebowski and just go like these are like you know these are cartoons this is not right. something i can relate to but i mean this movie in particular just felt kind of 
absolutely dead. Um, there's, you know, for me, I always, I always attribute it to like inspiration. Like this movie just seems uninspired to me. It's like, I see where they're going. I see why they did it. And it, there's it, like, it, it's a more straightforward musical. Whereas the big Lebowski was like such a creative mix right. of like all these different things. And it reminds me of like the difference between like New York, New York by Martin Scorsese, which is like a fascinating movie. Mm-hmm. I like it more than, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And like Goodfellas, which incorporates all those techniques that he had in that movie, but isn't like a straightforward musical, even though there are s- sections that play like a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, one feels inspired and the other one just feels like I'm doing this thing because I want to. And like, you know what I mean? Uh, anyway, that's just a, a thought I had. Can we, I know we're running like way too long for this, but to get into this conversation, but like this was my biggest issue watching the movie. So I really do want to get into it. Like, can we talk about like this thought that they don't handle race? Well, like, in I, this movie, I don't know a lot about movie. Mississippi. Are there a lot of black people there? Because like there weren't in the movie, and I don't know if that was accurate or not. Maybe one of you guys can speak to that. I don't, I've never been to the South. It's funny, there's way more black people in Sullivan's Travels than there was in this movie yes. that's filmed in 1941. <laughs> right. Seriously. So did yeah. you see Sullivan's Travels? Chris? I did. I made sure to watch oh, it before cool. we uh, yeah. talked about this. So What'd yeah. You think? By the What'd way, thank you. I it started off. I'm like, oh no, is this where like the 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 wealthy white guy wants to. You know, uh, I want to know what it's like to be poor. So I'm going to just dress up like a poor person for a day. I'm like, oh, no. All right. I'll, I'll yeah. give it a shot. Amazing. Such a great yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. The end just really had me. Obviously, the song, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, the, the sermon, the come down, Moses. Uh, like, so nice. wow, this is this is amazing. So I was really glad to have seen it. And obviously, there's like at least four or five like direct parallels between this one and Oh Brother. Oh, yeah, We're out there. The title, of course, obviously being the most obvious one. But um yeah, the prisoners seeing the movie great. too. Yeah, cool. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you got to see it. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously the fact that like they, you know, they are always bad about sort of even having black people in their movies, and then in this, there's a chain gang, and then there's the, you know, blind oracle at the beginning. And then they kind of disappear until you see the Well, the blind oracle <laughs> is very much the, the similar character to what happened in Hutsucker Proxy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the like, magical right. Negro, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I that's the part. But then there's Chris, Thomas King, Tommy Johnson, I should say. And, like, his character is... First of all, he's a bad actor, unfortunately. He's not, he's not an actor. Um, but he's playing like a but kind of like a stereotype character, like out of one of those 30s movies in my no mind to me. Well, and he's, he's playing a there. real he's guy, like Tommy Johnson. That doesn't, just like but he's not Michael playing Valucci. a real guy. He's playing a Coen Brothers version of like a real person, like right, a cartoon cutout of, of it. And he's playing it in a, like a mode of like thir- 1930s acting, the way like a black person would have been allowed to act. And the fact that that guy is not an actor, but an actual musician who's featured in the soundtrack means that the, like the fault or whatever of the performance, I think has to be attributed to the directors, unfortunately. Yeah, I can see that too. I, I agree. I mean, although I don't know that he would have given a great performance if they would have told him to do something else, because I don't know, he's just... What did he's you think of that performance, best. Chris? I thought that he's was just, like my borderline offensive to me. Yeah, you mean the Tommy Johnson? Uh, yeah, Tommy yeah. Johnson. He's he's not propelled in any way by his own agency. He's just blowing in the wind. He's yeah. used basically because he's a guitar player, and that right, enables exactly. them to become uh, to even, record this thing. Yeah, he makes no decisions of his own. Him. He has no agency. Yeah. He literally is just blown through the breeze of the plot. And he's you know nice enough guy, but he really uh, it, it, it could have been so much more. He's not a true character. You know what I mean? He just comes and goes and disappears and comes right. back. 
back again. Uh, the fact that they didn't feel like they needed to cast an actor made me feel, you know what I mean? Like that said something to me. Right. Right. Even them saving him from the gallows, like is a plot device to make sure that they have their accompaniment for their, you know, big performance. That's it. That's the next scene. You right. know, and it's that's like the obvious like white savior. Him. Like let's, let's save the, the poor, exactly. like defenseless yep. black man. You yeah, know what that I mean? Whole, that whole thing. Like I said, like I've, followed this part of their you know story with this movie since like the last time i saw it and it really turned me off when i said the last time i saw it like 10 years ago and it really turned me off then where i was just like you know when i had seen it in the theater that part didn't really wash over me at all i didn't think about it and then like i said 10 years ago i watched it and i was like oh like should they really be like just doing this in this movie and then watching all of these movies, eight movies in a row where they ignore the existence of black people unless they're using them as a plot device as they are in Hudsucker or this one. And it's really gross, you know, but then like I read about it cause I was reading up on this for this week and uh, their argument, I guess is like, I kind of said at the intro was that like, they don't want to take on, you know, racism in the old South. They're using it as like, uh, you know, I don't like that. But at the same time, like the fact that they named it, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? as a way to be like, this isn't us trying to like solve the problem of racism in the South. This is us like okay. trying to have fun in the American okay, South. Okay, like, so let's look at two things. Like, there's like the philosophical argument for doing it this way, which I think is actually fine. Like, I think that's yeah, like, yeah, like, I, like I, you know, and there's, you can make a philosophical argument for doing like the most heavy handed bullshit, like a, a, a Oscar bait stuff where you are trying to, you know, tackle racism and do something equally bad. Like philosophically, I have no problem with what they did. Uh, in terms of filmmaking and like entertainment, like it sucks. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's, no, but the whole, but that it's, part it just, is really bad. Is it's it, really or is it like just equally bad to the rest of the movie? And like also, <laughs> it's the worst also, part of the movie. okay. I mean, that's fair, yeah. but like it's also, to me, it, to me, it <laughs> because fits. Because I the laughed movie. my ass off and I watched it with Greta this week, my 10 year old, and she laughed her ass off too. Like, do you think that's an yeah. indictment of you? That I, I just joked. <laughs> you, you're like, oh, no. I was listening to the Wiggles the other day, and my, me and my daughter were like, "This is great music." No, no. no um, you know who? You know, can I just say something like uh, that movie, um, Django with uh, Unchained, with the, like the Ku Klux Klan scene in that movie. I mean, that's mm-hmm, a hilarious right. scene. That's played that for total comic relief, but it's great. It's also like really, it's also good. Like this movie was but trying I to also similar. Don't and, think I mean, we might end up talking about Tarantino someday. So, but like, I do think that like. Even though philosophically, or I should say, that's the opposite. Where like, I agree with the way, like, I laughed my ass off at that scene. But if I step back for one second, I'm like, no, they just shouldn't do that either. Like, it doesn't work all the way in that movie either. What do you mean? Tarantino. What do you mean they shouldn't? Are you, wait, which movie? I'm sorry. Django Unchained. Why not? Why can't they make fun of the Ku Klux Klan? I don't understand. Well, they can, but I also think that like, Maybe it's just because Tarantino's. We'll have to get into it. Spike it's Lee would agree with you. No, no, no. I don't think we have to stop. I, I mean, I don't mind if we go long. I mean, I don't know about you I guys. I just think, I like, uh, Tarantino's has proven himself to be, like, problematic at best. You know what I mean? When it comes to racism. Like, the In fact that sense. he, like, loves to uh, drop the N-bomb and, like, 
argue that like he can say it because he grew up in a black neighborhood and all this kind of bullshit where his mom had black boyfriends and stuff. It's like, that's always the wrong <laughs> stance to take, you know? And so like, he's already there. And then like, that doesn't, that's not his art though. That's different. Like his personal choices in his life no, and his art are different art. things. <laughs> He does it in his art all the time. Have you seen Pulp Fiction? Yeah, but that's like, like, but that's, it, it has a different function in art and life, I guess is what I'm just, is what I'm saying. And I don't have a, well, yeah. I don't know. I, like you said, Spike Lee has the same opinion as me, where it's like, maybe don't let this guy keep dropping, like, keep speaking for, like, I don't know, for us as us, like, kind of thing when he's not us, you know? And I'm saying us. I am not us either. <laughs> I am a white man. It's bad but, that uh, Quentin Tarantino is like, has been doing a lot of movies, like doing more movies about racism than than like actual like actual people who suffer from racism. I mean that is bad. Right. But I do agree with you that like in play, I would rather watch that scene in in Django Unchained than this scene in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Like I don't need to see the Wizard of Oz like OEO scene like as played out in literal southern cross-burning fucking KKK rallies. What about the blackface in the movie? Did you have a problem with that? Yeah, I do. I have a problem with all of the racism in there. It's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. movie. Yeah, I know Brother Where Art Thou. What blackface was there? Well, they put on shoe polish on their face to like go incognito for two seconds and they never explain it but it's they're on the road and they're just painting oh, their face they don't yeah, talk yeah, yeah, about yeah. it and right. then they end up at the KKK rally and that's, that's why right. they're confused of that's course like, of course and they're yeah, oh, yeah, they're, yeah. they're miscegenated or whatever right, right yeah exactly course. exactly yeah. that was subtle so yeah it is one of those weird things where like if we're comparing them to Tarantino I feel like the Coen brothers are like completely maybe on the right side of like you know, in this movie, the you know the stance is racism equals bad. In this movie, like there's no way around that. Like they're trying, but in doing so, they're just not doing it right. They're like unwoke about it to use a terrible like expression that I shouldn't be allowed to use. But uh, the way that Tarantino does it, which is like he's probably not. Uh, He's make I don't know. I, I they're just kind of opposites to me. Where like he makes things that are like more deliberately um challenging. Yes. For Carantino's just like, more comfortable, I think, uh trying to write an actual black person. Like, oh, I think I've been around so many black yeah, people. Exactly. I know how they're oh, this is gonna be a That's great true. scene. Yeah. You know? And uh and honestly, yeah. like when it's delivered by someone like Samuel L. Jackson, I mean it right. it really were I mean Really, like, I really love some of his stuff. And I totally hear Spike Lee's criticism regarding, like, you can't, as a white person, write the word, you know what I mean? Or or whatever you want to say it. Um, Apologies to anyone offended, but it's... uh this is a tricky topic, maybe for another time, but um, yeah, I, I, I you're right though. Exactly. Like at least Tarantino feels comfortable putting it down, saying, "I'm going to do this. Let's do it." And other people are like, "Nope, not even going to even mess with this. Let's avoid yeah. race." Like we talk about we Sofia talk about Coppola it. and the Beguiled, right? Like let's just right, leave right. everything about the Civil War out of it, and this is just about this thing, which is fine. I don't mind mm. that. I think other people do, but whatever. Like you, you work within your strengths, and you try not to overdo things you think you're going to make a total shit show out of we can talk about it a lot more in like three episodes when we talk about the lady killers uh, <laughs> because, because that's coming <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so it's unfortunate. And, you know, I thought that, like, going into this series, you know, I knew that this was going to sort of weigh on me. It hasn't weighed on me as hard or it weighs on me more and more every single week, I think. Like, there's also no women in this movie. Like, Holly Hunter comes in at the end and is treated like the nagging wife. You know, it's like really, like I said, she's amazing. She, like, can do anything in my mind. Like, she's so good. But, like, that's the only female character in the movie. And she's given, like, 10 minutes of screen time as a nagging wife that, like, they have to overcome that obstacle, too, in a lot of ways. So, I don't know. That's a whole another can of worms. But we can't really just keep talking about how I like this movie, even though it sucks, and Travis doesn't like it, even though it's great. <laughs> I think I've won this debate. I think it's a bad movie. I think we're all in agreement on some level. Oh, man. Well, should we, uh, on that note, should we end up ranking these guys? Do we remember? Yeah. Uh, oh, we're, yeah, on, yeah, we're yeah. on movie number eight now. Number eight. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I've got my rankings ready. You want to fire them off yet? Yeah. Number one, Fargo, Big Lebowski, Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Blood Simple, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy. Interesting. Mine have really shaken up a good bit. So Fargo is now the clear number one. It was tied with Big Lebowski, but it's 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 number one, followed by the nice. Big Lebowski. Number three, Blood Simple. Number four, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Number five, Raising Arizona. Number six, Barton Fink, which has actually risen from the bottom because I've been thinking about it a lot more. Oh, lately. interesting. There's certain things about it that I keep coming back to interestingly enough so yeah. uh, it's on my mind more uh, Hudsucker Proxy slipped to number 7 and then 8 Miller's Crossing I just just can't get behind that one I don't know Gabriel Byrne is just not my dude <laughs> I know I still I think know. Gabriel Byrne is a I know, great actor did you guys see uh, Shipwrecked growing up did we talk about that yes no yeah he's this like pirate it. guy oh mm-hmm. he's so good in that that was like one of my favorite movies I kind of later realized it's pretty much a rip off of the Black Stallion you know, like this kid mm. is like alone on an island, only instead mm. of a horse, he mm. has like a, a gorilla friend. Um, <laughs> but uh, Gabriel Byrne is awesome in that movie. And then he's also in um, Into the West, which is this great movie. Um, oh, yeah. He's like two Irish kids that run away and he's mm. like their drunken father. Like he's really good at like repressed Irish kind of like yeah, guilt and pathos. Exactly. Exactly. But like most movies, he doesn't work for me, but he does in that one. I don't know. Okay, so I'm going to give you my rankings. I still kind of want to keep Fargo and Raising Arizona in their own, like, exalted platform, mm-hmm. like, at the top. Big Lebowski is, like, right there with them. At a, I'm not going to assign numbers, but you, you're going to get a general, you know, uh, overview of kind of my feelings. Big Lebowski right underneath. Blood Simple, to me, is kind of like an oddity. I don't, like, it's not as Coen Brothers-ish to me as their other movies, so it kind of stands apart, but it is, like, a perfect little movie, but I just can't love it as much as something like Big Lebowski, even though that one feels, like, more uneven to me, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Then, right below that, you have the very impressive uh, trio of Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing, and Hudsucker Proxy, which are all, you know, kind of incredible movies that that just don't engage me, like, throughout the length of them. Um, and then you have at the very bottom, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> which does not engage me literally for a moment. Um, like from the opening scene, you have, yeah, that all black chain gang singing that song. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm really getting into the world. And then it cuts to black, cuts to the title, and then cuts away from them. And it's like, 
but we're going to follow these three white guys. Like from the very I beginning, I know, from the beginning, I it could know. have just cut out the, the opening song uh, and just started with the other shot, but they're not interested again in, in, in yeah. saying what's the story. They're interested in that showcasing the music, but that is the, how they do the whole entire movie. But oh, what works I'm sorry, I'm sorry. is that for me, it's funny. And for me, it's, it's not visually funny. beautiful. It's, not funny. it's visually beautiful. And it's, like, oh. it's the most organic of their movies while being completely like, what do you mean by words, organic? I'm what? sorry. Organic? Yeah. So obviously it's desaturated, but every part of it is like, okay. What I mean is like, there's yeah. no dream sequence. There's mm. all like very real, like of the earth, you know, things like they're fucking chasing tones toads and uh hmm. i don't know it, it lives in a world that's not like hyper real for the most part but you just you know said the, the flood the organic and then the singing in the real life I well, yeah they like... did flood they did flood towns when they broke dams yeah but people that weren't yeah but people didn't get wiped out by them and like just spin around like cartoon characters <laughs> it's like a biblical yeah, proportion I'm flood I'm not about, like, that's not just this <laughs> like the little town that's like the entire county or more like people died <laughs> but i mean i'm talking flood. about like, no, i'm talking no, about like no. no 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 i'm talking about the cartoonish way it's 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 shown not like did they really flood towns like were there really okay, well, toads I said of their movies. I'm not saying it is organic, oh, but of their movies. I disagree. <laughs> I think something like Fargo feels so much like more like real or immediate or like uh, Blood Simple. Blood like, Simple, even totally. If, even if there's like a dream sequence, it still feels more natural. This was like a complete like uh, a farce. Again, it's like a colored photograph of like a forgotten era way. that's like. I'm talking about like it's the most like trying to be, I don't know. I guess I'll just leave the cut this part out. I don't care about this. But all I was going to say was like, is that like, uh, for me, what works about it isn't like all the shit that we've talked about. It it is just that like, as a like weird comical window into a Dorothea Lange portrait, it like works in that way to me, you know. And I did like the Odyssey, like following the Odyssey. I didn't answer that question that you asked earlier, but like when I did see it when I was eighteen. I did like it when John Goodman pops up with one eye and you're like, oh shit, I see it. Even though I never fucking watched the Odyssey. I read the Odyssey. I just know it from life. You know, it yeah. comes in through osmosis. Like, I'm rolling my one eye pretty hard right now. I want to, uh, if we have any fans listening at, by this point of the podcast, please write your comments thing. underneath. Please tell me if you think George Clooney is funny in this movie because I feel like I'm losing my mind like uh, my this. wife and I He's both like so funny yeah I would love oh to know that we should start a Twitter poll oh my god <laughs> what Can't delivery wait. of what line did he say that was funny he said metallurgy and that was hilarious oh my god <laughs> metallurgic arts no he's really funny he's He's perfect at doing the Bugs Bunny like Clark Gable thing. No, he's not. No, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) Travis is cringing so hard right now. This is great. (laughs) We need to make this a visual podcast because it's just funny because God knows the correct answer and we can't know God's mind, and that is the torture of being alive. (laughs) Well said. Um, By the way. Loved the Evil Dead reference at the end when they go to George Clooney's family's cabin. It's literally a tiny yeah, model exactly. of the Evil yeah. Dead cabin, and they even linger totally. on it for a few minutes. Just, I totally love that too. I had the same thought. The same Raimi references continue. Love it. Well, if you like references to other better media, this is the movie for you. If you like actual funny <laughs> performances and interesting things, 
there's some better Coen Brothers movies out there. That's all I'm saying. We're going to have to talk about Man Who Wasn't There next week. Can't, can't wait. wait. Uh, underrated. Yes. Can't wait. Underrated. Yes. Absolutely underrated. Cool. All right, guys. All right. See you all next time. Bye. Bye. Way out in Arizona, in a town they call Winona, where the folks you meet all know a thing or two. Lives a lad of great ambition, who has set as his life's mission to excel upon his own today. And he'd play a little tune on his Spanish guitar. He'd mingle with a song, the sweet refrain. In the evening in the cactus, he would get a lot of practice on his Once a big shot from the city heard him warbling the ditty and